0: Mark 15, we've come as far as verse 38, but we'll back up to verse 33 to give some context. Uh, It says, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. He gave up his spirit. <coughs> Excuse me. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. And there were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and of Joseph and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now We stopped at verse 37 last week, where Jesus breathed his last. He gave up his spirit, his body is dead. There's a one time, once and for all transaction has taken place through his cross. His death for and on account of sin has made provision for all men to be reconciled to God, their sins no longer being counted against them. There, there is a preliminary indication here that Christ's sacrifice for sin has been accepted and is pleasing to God the Father, and that's in verse 38, where it says, Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This temple, of course, standing in Jerusalem, Jesus ministered there. It's the one He said, not one stone will be left upon another that will not be cast down. It began as a tent, a tabernacle in the wilderness. God gave Moses the plans for the tabernacle of God that was constructed in the wilderness. The plans later became the basis for the temple in Jerusalem. Moses was given detailed instructions, the equivalent of blueprints, really. Really, although it seems only in verbal form or it's seen in a way that he could accurately recall. And, you know, you'll read about the measurements of everything uh, if you go through these passages. Exodus 26 is where we see uh, verse 30. The Lord speaking to Moses and he says, you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern. Which we, you were shown on the mountain. This pattern is uh, significant because it's reflective of that uh, temple in heaven. In verse 31, he says, "You shall make a, a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine woven linen, and it shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim." So, there were this this veil would be in this uh, tabernacle. We'll see that it separates the holy place, the most holy place. These cherubim upon the veil are a reminder of man's expulsion from the Garden of Eden. They restricted man from re entering the garden and eating from the tree of life. This is in Genesis three uh, twenty three and twenty four. It says therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden, Adam, to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So well, the cherubim are there, you know, protecting access to this tree of life. In the temple there it's a barrier of access to the most holy place. In Exodus thirty-six or twenty-six, thirty-two, it says, You shall hang it, the veil, upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold, and their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver, and you shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The ark of the testimony, the ark of the covenant. Uh, this was where God would meet with Moses, and later he'd be there. The pre- his presence would be there when the high priest went in uh, once a year. So uh, you bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat upon the Ark of the Testimony in the Most Holy. Now the mercy seat, now this was just a golden lid that went upon the top of the Ark of the Covenant and it had cherubim on it that whose wings overshadowed the mercy seat. The mercy seat, the the uh, it's kapareth, is the Hebrew word and it means a place of, a mercy seat is the way it's translated. It means a place of atonement. It was a place where the high priest, as we'll see, goes in and sprinkles blood of a sacrifice upon that mercy seat on the day of atonement. And then in verse 35, he says, You shall set the table outside the veil, the lampstand across from the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south, and you shall put the table on the north side. So you had the, the uh, lampstand, which would be on one side of the holy place, not the most holy place, and the table, which is where the showbread would be on the opposite side. It says, uh, All of the furniture for the tabernacle was also to be made according to the pattern given to Moses. And you'll find descriptions of each article of furnishings in, in Exodus. The ark and the mercy seat or lid of atonement, the lampstand, The table of showbread, the altar of incense, which is not mentioned here, but it was in the holy place. Everything about the tabernacle was to be according to the pattern given to Moses by God. If we look in Hebrews chapter 8 verses 1 through 6, and we're going to look at some different areas of scripture this morning that will show us uh, a different aspect of the work of Christ that he accomplished upon the cross and subsequent to the cross. In Hebrews chapter 8, and verse 1, the the writer of Hebrews is uh, exhorting the people about their high priest, who is Jesus. And he says, this is the main point of the things we're saying. We have such a high priest. And he's been talking in chapter 7 about Melchizedek. He says, we have a priest like Melchizedek. Uh, Psalm 110, you know. uh, This day I begotten you and you are a, a priest Forever, after the order of Melchizedek. And that's the psalm that starts out, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So it's, that, it's a messianic psalm. So uh, the writer here says, We have such a high priest, and that would be Jesus, who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He's a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected, and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and we're told Melchizedek was priest of the Most High God. Therefore, it's necessary that this one also have something to offer, that is, Jesus. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. Jesus wouldn't have been a priest on the earth because he wasn't of the tribe of Judah. Uh, Nor He wasn't a family of Levi or, or the family of Aaron, so he wasn't qualified to be a high priest according to the law. But he was appointed a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, which far preceded the law. So there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things. So we're seeing that pattern, that copy, shadow, as the tabernacle was built. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, and that is God said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant. So he's got a better ministry, a better covenant which was established on better promises. Of course, this is a reference to the New Covenant, back in Mark fourteen, twenty four, where We read, uh, Jesus said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. So this veil separated the two areas of the tabernacle and later the temple into the holy place and the most holy place. Or the holy place and what we call the holy of holies. You've heard that expression. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 1, he says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. These are the... Things that were inside behind that veil, the golden censer was actually, uh, the altar of incense was outside the veil. But uh, once a year, as we'll see on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would carry coals from the altar with incense behind the veil. And these represented, of course, the prayer, prayers of the saints. The altar of incense, the rising smoke representing the prayers of the saints was just outside the veil. But the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies with coals from the altar of sacrifice and incense and blood for atonement once a year. In verse five, it says above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And this guy says of, of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. He had other things he needed to get on to. So. He said, now, now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the service. They maintained the lampstand. These were on a daily basis. The table of showbread, which the bread was replaced once a week. Now, showbread, that's our English word, but it, it's the bread of the face or the bread of the presence. And there were these 12 loaves and those represented the 12 tribes before the Lord. And then burning incense upon the altar of incense morning and evening each day. And this is when we read in Luke chapter 1, we read about uh, John the Baptist's father, uh, Zacharias. That he, it was his, a lot fell to him to go in and burn incense. And so there was one of these occasions, uh, either morning or evening, when he went in to burn incense. And the angel Gabriel appeared to him. He says in verse 7, into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It's restricted by that veil. And the only reason that high priest could go in is because he went in with the blood of the sacrifice first for himself and then for the people. He had little bells around the hem of his robe, and so they would listen and, and rope tied to his ankles. So that if the bells stopped for a prolonged period of time, it was time to drag this. Nobody could go in to get him, or they would be struck dead. And then they they would have to quickly consecrate a new high priest. <laughs> so they could continue. The high priest would alone be allowed into the Most Holy Place or Holy of Holies and that once each year on Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement in English. In Mark, uh, Jesus has just died on the Feast of Passover as our Passover Lamb. At Passover in Egypt, the blood of the sacrificial lamb was placed on the doorposts and lintels of the homes in which the Jewish families were sheltering and the angel of death sent to kill all the firstborn of man and beast would pass over the homes of those who had by faith placed the blood of a lamb without a blemish on their doorposts and lintel. Although Jesus died on the feast of Passover, we're told he's our Passover, he's our Passover lamb. He also carried out the ministry of the high priest as foreshadowed by his practices on the day of atonement. In Leviticus 16, we read what the high priest would do on the Day of Atonement. Uh, in, starting in verse 1, he says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. They had unauthorized burning of fire before the Lord. And then fire came out of the holiest place and And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. This is where God chose to have his presence in Jerusalem. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burn offering. He shall put the holy... Linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash. And with a linen turban he shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel. Two kids of the goats as a sin offering. And one ram as a burn offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering. Which is for himself. And make atonement for himself in his house. So he had to be. Uh, his sin needed to be covered before he could do anything for the people. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats: one lot for the Lord, and the other lot for the scapegoat. Or uh, the word is Azazel. There's, you know, a lot of speculation about it exactly, but uh, scapegoat is as good a description as any. <coughs> Excuse me. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. This was for the people. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering which is for himself and make atonement for himself and for his house and shall kill the bull as the sin offering which is for himself. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord with his hands full of sweet incense beaten fine and bring it inside the veil. So this is that censer that's, uh, incense censer that's brought in. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony lest he die. There's a lot of death involved in this. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil. Do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out. For he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. So he had to do this alone. There wasn't anybody that could help him with this. And that's a picture of Jesus doing the work of redemption himself without anyone else being involved. And all this is a picture of um, Jesus as a high priest carrying out these acts on our behalf. Of course, he didn't have to make a sacrifice for himself. He had no sin. His sacrifice was for us that we might be forgiven, cleansed, redeemed. In verse 20 of Leviticus uh, 16, it says, When he, that would be the high priest, has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man." The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. So they would take this scapegoat, confess the sins of Israel upon it and drive it into the wilderness. And They came to develop various practices about this. Like you know, they began to pull the hair of the goat and say, take and go. So they wanted to get these sins out of it because if the goat came back, that, was, that would be a bad sign. So they finally got to the point where uh, they figured out a way to prevent the goat from ever coming back. They took the goat out to a precipice and pushed him off. <laughs> wow. And it was such a, a high cliff that they said by the time the goat was halfway down that it was torn limb from limb. You know, So I guess it was rough and it would tumble, tumble down. So, scapegoat. That, that doesn't even approach what Jesus endured for us. So this was the process on the Day of Atonement in the tabernacle and later in the temple at the time of Jesus. By the way, this Day of Atonement, there will be a literal fulfillment of the Day of Atonement for the nation of Israel at the second coming of Jesus at the end of the tribulation period when they will look upon Him whom they pierced and mourn for Him as an only son. Zechariah 12.10 The Lord speaks and says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Then the scripture will be fulfilled in Romans 11 uh, verses 25 through 27, which says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. We know the fullness of the Gentiles has not come in because blindness in part has not been turned away from Israel at this point. That means all their eyes will be open, And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So Israel will believe and be saved and the earthly kingdom, the millennium, will begin. But Jesus has already carried out the tasks of the Day of Atonement in the heavenlies for those who believe now. Hebrews 9 verses 11 through 28 says, Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He he doesn't have to do it every year. His blood was such that it was cleansing eternally. He has obtained eternal redemption through this one act. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason, he's the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For that, where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Changes the picture a little bit. You know, actually, when it speaks of the new covenant, words of covenant here, it's the same word. that's translated testament, but in English, they change it from covenant to testament uh, like a last will in testament where someone would write it out and then you know it's not in effect till the person dies right Uh, in the first covenant there had to be death and that was the death of the sacrificial animals that passed through because they could only cover sin they could not cleanse from sin they could not redeem and so this had to be repeated continually But with Jesus, as He dies, that new covenant is brought into place. Verse 17, for a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. So, you you know, some of you have last wills and testaments probably that have been prepared. And it's not good as long as you're breathing, you know. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. There has to be death. Life is in the blood. The blood has to be shed. It has to be poured out. uh, Because the penalty of sin is death. Either you have to die or somebody else has to die uh, to make up for that sin. He says in verse 23, Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once At the end of the ages he's appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. One sacrifice, one time, historical. There are those who claim to this sacrifice daily that's totally unneeded. As a matter of fact, it's, it's false teaching. <laughs> it's teaching people falsely about the sacrifice that's been completed once for all. And all of this relates to the tearing of the veil in the temple when Jesus died. The separation between God and man because of sin has been removed for those who accept the sacrifice. Before Jesus' sacrifice, only one man once a year could enter the most holy place and not without a blood sacrifice to prevent his own death, doing the work of this atonement. Blood also for the sins of the people. He didn't enjoy fellowship with God even while doing this. He was just carrying out the business that had to be accomplished. If done according to God's instructions, he obtained atonement or covering, not taking away, of the people's sins for the past year. The sins would only and could only be taken away by the blood of Jesus, the sacrificial lamb without blemish, that is, without sin, the substitute to bear the pangs of death for everyone who believes. Hebrews chapter chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. He's quoting uh, Psalm eight. But in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But the writer says, now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. And days coming when all things will be put under him, all his enemies, his footstool. So when Jesus died, the payment for sin was completed. Sins were washed away, not just covered, nor merely judgment deferred. Judgment was carried out on the Son, and those who trust in Him are no longer subject to judgment for their sin. Believers are born from above and adopted as sons. They may experience chastisement as sons if they sin, but they will no longer come into condemnation. As we read earlier in Hebrews 9.12, he says, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Over in chapter 10 of Hebrews, in verse 9, speaking of Jesus, he said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God. Psalm 40 being quoted. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. He's taking that first covenant out of the way. Establishing the second covenant. By that will, will, his will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Sanctified, set apart, made holy unto God through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. And, And every priest, he says, stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till His enemies are made His footstool. For by one offering He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. One offering, perfected forever, but those who have He's perfected forever are still being sanctified. There's still a sanctification process going on, but because we've trusted in that work which He has done, he sees it as as perfected forever. That is the good news. And by this offering, he brought about the rending of the veil of the temple. The message is that the way into the presence of God has been obtained for all who believe. The ministry of our high priest, perch- the ministry of, of our high priest, purchased for us forgiveness of sin and fellowship with God in His very presence. In Hebrews 10 again, verse 19, he says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. You can go right into the holiest place where the high priest, if he went in there and didn't do things right, he was going to be dead. was going to die. He says boldly, we have, we have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, his flesh being torn gave us access to the holiest place, fellowship with God. And having a high priest over the house of God, he says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He tells us a couple of times here to hold fast to that confession. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more, so much the more as you see the day approaching. And back in Hebrews 4, uh, verses 14 through 16, he says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He knows what it is to be tempted in all ways. And he knows our weaknesses. He says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. There it is again. We can enter in confidently, boldly. Not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is and because of what he's done. And the door is open. That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. so Mark tells us that the veil was torn into from top to bottom that is from the top down. God was the only one who could remove this barrier between himself and man in the second Corinthians five nineteen and twenty we we read this last week it says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God has reconciled Himself to the world. Now it's up to man to be reconciled to God. So God tore the veil in the temple upon the completion of the sacrifice for sin. The way is now open into the presence of God. Yet there is but one way through the Son, Christ Jesus. So God has reconciled the world to Himself in Christ. It's now up to man to be reconciled to God, to turn to God, to repent of sin, to receive Christ as Lamb Lord and High Priest, and to leave the world behind. Still in the world, but no longer of the world, as he was in, but not of the world. Sanctified, separated to God by the blood of Jesus and unto the service of God. So the veil separating the most holy place from the merely holy place was rent from the top, it could never be torn from the bottom. All the religions of man are an attempt to tear that veil from the bottom. But those efforts can never be successful. It has to be God's work and it is God's work in Christ and only God's work in Christ that gets it done. There's some background on this uh, this veil and some other events that occurred on, occur on the Day of Atonement or used to occur on the Day of Atonement. There's a summary given by uh, George and we'll see a couple of summaries and we'll look at a little bit of detail. And uh, I'll put a disclaimer in here, a caveat that, um, you know, these things are not Scripture. They're not God-breathed as Scripture is. The things I'm sharing now are true according to historical sources, but not authoritative as Scripture is. Uh, but some of this information is quite fascinating, to say the least. It's It's really amazing especially given the source from which it comes. But uh, George says the New Testament records or records that when Yeshua, Jesus, died, there was a great earthquake. And that's in, in Matthew. And the veil of the temple was torn in two. The size of this gigantic veil is not recorded in the New Testament. But we read from other sources that it was roughly 60 feet long, 30 feet wide, with multiple woven layers, the thickness of a man's hand. So... Across this way, four or five inches, maybe, maybe if a big hand. 16. It was hung on a crossbeam stone. This is in the the uh, temple, and the tabernacle it was hung on those posts. Uh, but the, in the temple, it was hung on a crossbeam stone, a lintel that was over thirty feet long and weighed more than thirty tons. It was not an easy cloth to tear, says George. Jerome, a 4th century church father, writes concerning the tearing of the veil, that not only was the veil torn, but the great earthquake had also caused the lintel of the temple to be broken in two. In fact, it seems that the breaking of the lintel was what caused the veil to be torn in half from top to bottom, since the veil hung down from the lintel. In the culture of the Jewish people, a father will commonly mourn the loss of his son by rending or tearing his garment. He says, can we suggest that the rending of the temple's veil likewise dramatically expressed our Heavenly Father's agony over the death of Yeshua, His only begotten Son? The way was prepared through the death of the Son of God for us to have access to the Holy of Holies, that place on earth which was prepared for the abiding presence of God's Spirit. And in earlier temple times actually contained His glory. In the death of the Messiah Yeshua, every barrier and obstacle, even a 30-ton stone that needed to be broken, was removed to make a way for us to have an intimate relationship with the Father. Now, Nolan Lloyd-Jones also uh, notes that from the Jerusalem and Babylonian Talmuds, and this is mostly what we're going to see the information following from, these, these are Jewish sources hostile witnesses you might say it's difficult to imagine these being corrupted by say Christians where they put their own stuff in there you know these were written by Jews for Jews well the Jerusalem and Babylonian Talmuds tell us that every night for forty years the destruction of the temple uh, I'm sorry every night for forty years before the destruction of the temple the middle or chief light on the golden candlestick and you know, we tend to translate these candlesticks because that goes back to the King James and uh, this was a lampstand. You know, there were no candles involved. It's oil and wicks. Uh, but because that went out of phase and all they knew was candlesticks, you know, that's, that's how this got translated. So anyway, this light on the golden lampstand would simply go out for every night for 40 years before the destruction of the temple. And the great brass temple gates, which were closed each evening, were seen to swing open every night of their own accord. Josephus tells us that these doors were so massive that it took 20 men to close them. He also shares the Roman general Titus began the siege of Jerusalem on Nisan 1470 A.D., 40 years to the day after the crucifixion. We know 40 is a prime number. In Scripture in 40 years, of course. Uh, We see the wanderings in the wilderness and so forth. Um, A little more summary and then we'll see some more detail. We read in the Jerusalem Talmud. This is a quote from the Jerusalem Talmud. Forty years before the destruction of the temple, the western light went out. The crimson thread remained crimson. And we'll learn about that in a minute. And the lot for the Lord always came up in the left hand. That's the lot for the two goats. They would close the gates of the temple by night and get up in the morning and find them wide open. A similar passage in the ba- Babylonian Talmud, and these Talmuds were simply written in different places. It says, uh, our, Rab- our rabbis taught during the last 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the lot, or for the Lord, is, was, the, there was a white stone and a black stone, and the white one was for the Lord. That would be the goat to be sacrificed. Forty years before the destruction of the temple, the lot did not come up in the right hand, so no white stone, nor did the crimson-colored strap become white, nor did the westernmost light shine, and the doors of the Hekel, or the temple, would open by themselves. So these sources agree with each other. This information can also still be found in the Jewish Encyclopedia, if you look online, and, and in the Mishnah, which are more modern sources. Uh, Several miracles, they call them miracles, are associated with the Day of Atonement ritual practiced in the Second Temple. That is, at the time of Jesus. This this is the way things were done and carried out. So this this is some of the, the details. We have the miracle of the lot. And this is where they cast lots to see which goat would be killed, which one would be turned loose says, the first of these miracles concerns a random choosing of the lot which was cast on the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. The lot chosen determined which of the two goats would be for the Lord and which goat would be the Azazel or scapegoat. During the 200 years before 30 AD, when the high priest picked one of the two stones, uh, again, this selection was governed by chance. And each year the priest would select a black stone as often as a white stone. But for 40 years in a row, beginning in 30 A.D., the high priest always picked the black stone. The odds against this happening are astronomical. He gives 2 to the 40th power. In other words, the chances of this occurring are 1 in approximately 1,099,511,627,776. Or over a trillion to one. (laughs) By comparison, your chances of winning your state, local, state, or mun- municipal-run cash lottery would be much more favorable. The lot for Azazel, the Blackstone, contrary to all the laws of chance, came up 40 times in a row from 30 to 70 A.D. This was considered a dire event and signified something had fundamentally changed in this Yom Kippur ritual. The casting of lots is, is also accompanied by yet another miracle, which is described next, and that's the miracle of the red strip. The second miracle concerns a crimson strip or cloth tied to the Azazel goat. A portion of this red cloth was also removed from the goat and tied to the temple door. So they would have this red uh, cord and part of it would be tied well, they would tie it to the goat and then they would take Part of it and put it on the temple door. One, one time they stuck it on a rock, you know, that was out there. But, you know, progressed to the temple door. Each year, the red cloth on the temple door turned white as if to signify the atonement of another Yom Kippur was acceptable to the Lord. This annual event happened until 30 A.D. when the cloth then remained crimson each year to the time of the temple's destruction. This undoubtedly caused much stir and consternation among the Jews. This traditional practice is linked to Israel confessing its sins and ceremonially placing this nation's sin upon the Azazel goat. The sin was then removed by this goat's death. Sin was represented by the red color of the cloth, the color of blood, but the cloth remained crimson. That is, Israel's sins were not being pardoned and made white. Same time frame, 40 years, 30 to 70. This practice was associated by the Jews with the words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 118, which says, Come, let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet or crimson, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as white wool. And so the red remaining red, uh, that would be telling them that the Lord did not accept their sacrifice. The clear indication is that the whole community had lost the Lord's attention in relation to something that occurred in 30 A.D. The yearly atonement achieved through the typical Yom Kippur observance was not being realized as expected. Atonement apparently was to be gained in some other way. Who or what would provide the atonement for another year? In other words, this atonement was no longer accepted by the Lord on behalf of the people. We know there was another atonement that was in place. And so this one's no good anymore. It's obsolete. Concerning this crimson strip, though not mentioned in the Scriptures, but it is in the Talmud, and uh, long before 30 uh, A.D., um, there was a high priest named Simon the Righteous. Um, I don't know the exact time frame of his uh, life, but it was like uh, from the Third, early fourth, or late fourth century to early third century C. uh, Before B.C. So this high priest Simon the Righteous, during his 40 years as high priest, the crimson thread, which was associated with his person, always turned white when he entered the temple's innermost holy of holies. The people noticed this. They also, also, they noted that the lot of the Lord, the white lot, came up for 40 straight years during Simon's priesthood. They noticed that the lot picked by the priest after Simon's would sometimes be black and sometimes white, but that the crimson thread would sometimes turn white and sometimes not. The Jews came to believe that if the crimson thread turned white, that God approved of the Day of Atonement rituals and that Israel could be assured that God forgave their sins. But after 30 A.D. the crimson thread never turned white again for 40 years, till the destruction of the temple and the cessation of all temple rituals. So it couldn't couldn't change again, cause there wasn't any <laughs> been done away with. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> what did the Jewish people do in 30 A.D. to merit such a change at Yom Kippur? By some accounts, April the 4th, 30 AD, that is the 14th of Nisan, the day of the Passover sacrifice, the Messiah Yeshua was cut off from Israel, himself put to death as a sacrifice for sin. To this event, there is a transference of the atonement now no longer achieved through the two goats as offered at, at Yom Kippur. Like an innocent Passover lamb, the Messiah was put to death, through no fault. though no fault was found in him, But unlike the temple sacrifices or the Yom Kippur events as detailed above, where sin is only covered over for a time, the Messianic sacrifice comes with the promise of forgiveness of sins through grace given by God to those who accept a personal relationship with the Messiah. This is essentially a one-time event for each person's lifetime and not a continual series of annual observances and animal sacrifices. The mechanism provided forgiveness of sin, providing forgiveness of sin changed in 30 A.D. Then you have the miracle of the temple doors, which were mentioned briefly. The next miracle, which the Jewish authorities acknowledged, was that the temple doors swung open every night of their own accord. This too occurred for 40 years, beginning in 30 A.D. The leading Jewish authority of that time, Yohanan bin Zakkai, declared that this was a sign of impending doom that the temple itself would be destroyed. The Jerusalem Talmud states, uh, Said Rabban Yohanan ben Zakkai to the temple, O temple, why do you frighten us? We know that you will end up destroyed. For it has been said, Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. And a lot of the temple had cedars from Lebanon. He was quoting Zechariah 11 and verse 1. So they saw this, you know, these doors open. Well, the Lord's saying, "Come on in, you know, come through Jesus, but come on in. That it's not there's no restriction anymore. Not for the priest, holy place where only the priest could go, or the most holy place where only the high priest could go." Yohanan ben Zakkai was the leader of the Jewish community during the time following the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D when the Jewish government was transferred to Jomnia, some 30 miles west of Jerusalem. Might the doors have opened to also signify that all may now enter the temple even to its innermost holy sections? The evidence supported by the miracles described above suggests the Lord's presence had departed from the temple. This was no longer just a place for high priests alone, but the doors swung open for all to enter the Lord's house of worship. Finally, the miracle of the temple menorah, that lampstand. The fourth miracle was that the most important lamp of the seven candlestick menorah in the temple went out and would not shine. Every night for 40 years, over 12,500 nights in a row, the main lamp of the temple or the lampstand, the menorah, it went out of its own accord. No matter what attempts and precautions the priest took to safeguard against this event. A man named uh, Ernest Martin says, in fact, we're told in the Talmud that at dusk, the lamps that were unlit in the daytime, which was the middle four lamps, uh, remained unlit while the two eastern lamps normally stayed lit during the day. Well, they were all to be relit from the flames of the western lamp, which was a lamp that was supposed to stay lit all the time. It was like the eternal flame that we see today in some national monuments. The Western Lamp was to be kept lit at all times. For that reason, the priests kept extra reservoirs of olive oil and other implements in ready supply to make sure that the Western Lamp, under all circumstances, would stay lit. But what happened in the 40 years from the very year Messiah said the physical temple would be destroyed. Every night for 40 years, the Western Lamp went out. And this in spite of the priests, each evening preparing in a special way the western lamp so that it would remain constantly burning all night. Again, the odds against the lamp continually going out are astronomical. Something out of the ordinary was going on. The light of the menorah representing contact with God, His Spirit, and His presence was now removed. This special demonstration occurred starting with the crucifixion of the Messiah. It should be clear to any reasonable mind that there is no natural way to explain all these four signs connected with the year 30 A.D. The only possible explanation has to be supernatural. You look at the enormous odds against each one of these occurring individually and then combine them together. After 30 A.D. and the death of the Messiah, great trouble and awesome trials began to come upon the Jewish nation. Yeshua Himself foretold it as He was led away to be crucified. Yeshua warned the women of Jerusalem in Luke 23, 28-31. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for Me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed, the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? So when we take an objective look at the events of 30 AD, who can doubt that it was indeed the true year of the crucifixion and resurrection of the true Messiah God sent to Israel? Who can deny that he is the one and only true Messiah? Who else has fulfilled all the prophecies of the Old Testament, including the amazing prophecy of Daniel 9 and the 70 weeks, coming at the very year predicted for the Messiah to appear. From 30 A.D. to 70 A.D., God, in His long suffering, gives Israel 40 years to repent and turn to Him and gives Him gives them these signs before the destruction of the temple and dispersion of the Jewish people throughout the world. Titus's armies began the siege of Jerusalem, resulting in the destruction of the city and Herod's temple as prophesied by Jesus, 40 years to the day from the crucifixion. If we look in at Mark 15 and verse 39, we're told, When the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. This centurion had been taking in all the events of the crucifixion and and was aware of the supernatural nature of all that was taking place. Three hours of darkness and the behavior of Jesus while on the cross. No man ever died like this man. That's what this centurion saw. No man was ever conceived like this man. No man ever lived like this man. No man ever taught like this man. No man ever spoke like this man. No man ever died like this man. No man was ever raised from the dead like this man. In verses 40 and 41 of Mark 15 it says, There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and of Joseph and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. As is often the case, the women were the most faithful in following Jesus. They looked on from afar, I don't believe out of fear, but out of distress, not being able to take it. If they were up too close. We know from John's Gospel that he and Mary were also present at the cross. Uh, in addition, Matthew says that uh, the mother of James and John, Zebedee's mom, was there. Many think her name was Siloam. In uh, verses 42-47, through 47, then we find the burial of Jesus. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. And then he brought fine linen, took him down, wrapped him in the linen. He laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. The bodies would not be left on the cross beyond twilight since the day beginning at evening was a high Sabbath, that is the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Jews would not leave a body hanging on any evening but most especially on a Sabbath or a high Sabbath. In Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23, we read, If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, for he who is hanged is accursed of God. So he had to die and come down be buried that same day. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea takes courage and it would take courage and he comes to ask for the body of Jesus. Otherwise, he would likely have been cast into a mass grave or simply left exposed. That's what they typically did with uh, crucified criminals. As a prominent council member, that means he was part of the Sanhedrin, Joseph risks his position and his reputation by taking this action. Uh, We're told in another Passage. He was a secret follower of Jesus. No, he's not secret anymore. (laughs) Joseph wraps and buries the body and rolls a stone against the door. We know from other accounts that a guard was posted lest the disciples steal the body. David Guzik says, Joseph did not serve Jesus in many ways, but he did serve Him in ways no one else did or could. It was not possible for Peter, James, John, or even the many women who served Jesus to provide a tomb. But Joseph could and did. We must serve God in whatever way we can. You may be called to serve God in a way that no one else can in a circumstance, or you may be called to serve God in a way that anyone can, but he wants you to do it. We know also that Nicodemus participated in this burial. That's in John nineteen, thirty eight through forty two. As after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus, and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds, to anoint the body. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury And now the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. There was no confusion about the location of the tomb. The women, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph, observed the tomb where Jesus was laid. These women saw the burial. If they, at some point they were not sure, all they had to do was ask Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus. Or just ask the Romans. The soldiers stationed at the tomb. If he's in another tomb, the Romans or the Jews would have brought the body out for display. They did not. They simply accused the apostles of stealing the body. The most far-fetched conspiracy theory in the history of the world. Given their mental, emotional, and spiritual state at this time. Plus the fact that they went to their deaths, often martyred, without ever recanting their testimony of the risen Christ, which they would have known to be a lie. The empty tomb in the political and social circumstances surrounding the execution of Jesus is a powerful testimony to the resurrection of Jesus.